Um, good morning. Um, well, let me just begin by praying, if that's okay. Um, Lord God, we just thank you for this time that we can come um, and we can think again about the book of Ruth. Um, Lord God, we thank you so much for what we've already heard um, from Ivan and Drew and Oren. Um, thank you, Lord, for this story, uh, which is so relevant today. And just pray, Lord, that you would um, help me this morning, that you'd help me to speak your words, not mine, um, and that you would speak through me, Lord. And just help us as we listen. Help us to listen not just with our, our ears, but with our hearts. Help us to hear what you have to say, Lord. Um, just pray this in your name. Amen. Um, just to get started, um, I thought we could really quickly, hopefully, it might not be that quick, but have a quick recap of chapters 1, 2, and 3, because context is really important in chapter 4. Um, just refreshing ourselves and having those things in our mind is really, really important. Um, so we're going to try to do a bit of a whistle-stop tour. It is not um, going into the same depth as the guys who spoke before at all. It's just kind of a little, um, yeah, it's a little whistle-stop tour. Um, hopefully this works for me. So we're going to look at uh, a quick recap. And we know there was Elimelech and Naomi, and they were husband and wife. And they had two sons, Malon and Killian. Um, and they were presented with a bit of a problem. In the land where they came from, the land of Bethlehem, which is in the region of Judah, there was a famine. And we're told that in chapter 1, verse 1. And Elimelech, head of his household, had a choice to make. What was he going to do? Um, how was he going to try and provide and protect his family? in the land of Bethlehem. Um, and his solution and what he opted for was to take his family and to move to the land of Moab. Now, um, if we look at this map, you can see the journey they made. So they started off here in Bethlehem on the west side and they headed east, up north and around the Dead Sea through Jerusalem, Jericho, Heshbon, and then coming down into Moab. So from the region of Judah, right round through Reuben and down into Moab. What do we know about the Moabites? Um, well, they headed on a, on a, they were to sojourn. It was a temporary stay in the land of the Moabites. And Moab was um, a pretty, a pretty disastrous place, a pretty grim place from what we can figure out. Um, how it came to be, it was um, Lot, and he had incest with his daughter. So that's definitely off to the wrong foot. Um, if you turn with me just really, really quickly to Genesis chapter 19, verse 36. So Genesis chapter 19, chapter 19 and verse 36 and 37 says, Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, and the firstborn bore a son and called him, called his name Moab. He is a father of the Moabites to this day. So that's how the Moabites um, came to be. Um, we're told in, in various places in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, that Moab were an enemy of Israel um, and they were at war with them. We're told that they're a pagan nation and in particular, um, they were kind of caught up, their high priests, um, in serving an assortment of false gods. Um, two, in particular, um, 
are really quite gross. Now, we'll not go into it. There's a few things on the screen behind me there. But they had all sorts of rituals um, and child sacrifice um, as well. I just think this is interesting, just to very briefly pause. Um, and it's not at all the focus of today, but um, when it's translated across, it is passing children through the fire. And that sounds quite grand and something quite special. It's completely horrible. Um, they had uh, false idols. Um, it was a, a statue that looked a little bit like this. Um, and there's a fire either in the statue or around it, and they offered their children. Um, and, and it was for various reasons, but one of the main reasons was actually to do with property and land. Um, if you offered your child, um, then your land would be prosperous or your house would prosper. Um, sometimes they actually um, offered their firstborn and buried them in the foundations of the house. Um, a really sick uh, and twisted generation. And I was reading that, um, I was pretty grossed out by it, and then thought, isn't it a little similar to today and the generation we live in, where we have these phrases um, to do with abortion in the media, which are just so sick and so twisted. Um, now, you may have a different opinion to me on that, and I am more than happy to chat to you about it, but that's where I'm at, and that's what I believe the Bible says, that abortion is murder. Um, but phrases like, you know, just getting rid of that wee problem, or, you know, helping you to live your life the way you want to live it, that is not the truth. Um, and these people are fooled, and hopefully today <coughs> our nation is, is not fooled and, and we can steer away from the direction we seem to be heading. But Elimelech rightly or wrongly led his family to the Moabites. Now, I say rightly or wrongly because there's some debate among scholars as to whether did he have a choice? What what would what could you do? You know, there was a famine in the land. They needed food. Um, many would suggest that it was still a bad move uh, to move to the land of Moab, and he might have had other alternatives and other places to go. Um, there's no clear, definitive answer in the passage that tells us that Elimelech died because of his move to Moab, but he did pass away. Um, and in the following ten years, Malon and Kilion, his two sons take wives from the Moabites. Uh, Malon takes Orpha and Kilian takes Ruth. They're both Moabite women brought up in Moabite culture. Um, and probably um, the assumption would be that they followed Moabite religion. Um, and within a 10-year period, both of these men also die. This family has been struck hard. Um, if you are Naomi, you have lost your husband and your two sons. You have experienced three deaths in a, three deaths in a window of ten years, um, and you now have two daughters-in-law who are husbandless. There are no children. Um, it's a really difficult situation. And Aaron mentioned um, last week about problems. Um, I've put a question mark here. Was it because they left Moab that this happened? We don't know categorically, but we do know for a fact that they experienced two big problems. One was food, and the second was family. Um, to carry on the family name, there was no um, children. There was no boy, no son. Um, and, and family was an issue too. We have three women here with, with no husbands, left by themselves. Um, and then we come to this incredible um, 
incredible bit in chapter one, and I really am just trying to say this to try and get the context for chapter four because we need to kind of see where we've come from and just refresh our memories. Um, at the end of the 10 years, all three women are left widows. Naomi hears in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited his people in Bethlehem and given them food, so she decides to return home. And she begins her journey with both of her daughters-in-law. They're on the journey. We don't know if it's at the start, middle, or towards the end, but at some stage, she stops and turns to them and says to them, this is paraphrased, but don't come with me. I have nothing for you. You know, I, you are Moabites. I'm taking you out of your culture. I'm taking you out of your friendship networks, your families. Um, I can't ask you to come with me. I don't have sons. I don't have husbands for you anymore. Even if I was to go back and have another son, by the time he's grown up, you know, you're going to be past the child, the, the, the age of childbearing. Are you going to wait that long? I have, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer you. I'm giving you a chance to just turn, go back. So logic, logically, looking at that and looking at their options, um, Orpha decided that she was going to turn around and return. But we're told that Naomi says this, or sorry, Ruth says this to Naomi. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That is a full commitment, a full fledge to Naomi. And for what? Why? She has nothing to gain. Um, we got a wee cat called Oscar, and uh, we were taking him to the vets there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and he is not a traveller in the car at all. This is not Oscar, by the way. This is some other cat. Um, but um, he wasn't feeling good, and he was panicking. He was freaking out. And uh, it's quite funny, actually. I was driving, and Rebecca's in the passenger seat with a kitten on her knee who was being sick, wanting desperately to put it down in the footwell in the litter tray. But he was clinging, and I mean clinging, onto her leg. The little claws were dug in. Um, I love this verse. Uh, verse 14 there. At this they wept aloud again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Why would she cling to Naomi? Okay, this is a scenario. What would you do? Would you like a fresh start to go back to, to the security of your family and your people, hoping to find a new husband? Or, here's your alternative. Stay with Naomi, who is grieving. She wants to change her name to uh, Martha, which means bitter, and, and is feeling judged. No prospect of children, or a husband, or money, or possibly a home in a land that she knows nothing about. She's going to be branded a foreigner and have no friends. <laughs> You know, the options there are day and night. Um, it's not so much that this is a fantastic option. She's been dealt a really hard hand. But the alternative of falling through and living that out, it's so grim and so bleak. You can completely understand why Orpha decided, no, 
I'm going to go with this. I'm going to side with the logical option. But there was something here at work, and that something was in the character and the beliefs of Naomi. It has to be. There's no other explanation I can think of. There was something about Naomi that was so uniquely attractive that tipped the scales of these two options. It must have been Naomi's belief in God. Um, the love that Ruth had for Naomi, absolutely. But where did that come from? What's behind that? It's Naomi's character. It's the way Naomi's living her life. It's what Naomi is doing and how she's doing it and how she's talking. It's all of her. And there's something about her that is so unique that Ruth just can't let go of. And she has to commit. And, and, and she follows through and she has a resolve to stick by her. It's really important we get to chapter four. Um, skipping on then, um, the first problem was food. And in chapter two, Drew told us that that was met by Boaz. Um, Boaz, from the moment um, Ruth goes in his, in his field, is quite funny. Um, he's described as a worthy man from the clan of Elimelech. He is um, a kin, he's related, um, but he takes her if he really takes her, you know. Um, she catches his eye and she finds favour with Boaz. It tells us that in the passage. And Boaz protects and he provides for her. But as Aaron kind of went on to mention then last week, um, there's a second problem, which is family. It was seen as a curse for your name to die with you, for you not to continue on the family legacy. But Naomi and Ruth were both widowed and both childless. Um, and then it says this right at the end of chapter two. So she kept a close, she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. Um, Boaz protects and he provides, but he also ponders. Do you know what I mean? They are so keen, Naomi and Ruth, so keen to have these two problems sorted, food and family. And Boaz provides food. But Naomi in particular, I think, just from the feeling you get from the text, Naomi is like, this could work. Boaz, this could be a goer. She could, or Boaz could sort out our problems with both food and family. He is kin. He is related. Um, so Boaz protects and he provides, but then he ponders and he hangs about, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest time scale. We've got famine, 10 years and three deaths. Come back. Some people believe that chapter 2 is actually just the very next day. So Ruth is straight out into the fields. Boaz provides and protects straight. He's right on the ball, but then he ponders. And we have weeks that pass by, possibly months, um, where he's just liking Ruth and trying to protect her, but he's not doing anything particularly proactive about it. So Naomi, the mother-in-law, takes matters into her own hands, um, and she comes up with a plan, and that's what we heard about last week, that plan that kind of makes you blush a little, and the story about Naomi, um, Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor, and she comes in and she uncovers his feet. Um, and basically what she's doing is, is proposing to Boaz. Um, so Naomi takes this matter into her own hands and Ruth proposes the marriage to Boaz. And at the end of chapter 3, if you look with me, 
Um, we have, in verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The story is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a bigger and bigger crescendo as it goes on. It gets more and more exciting, more and more tense, more and more deep. And we've got it all in this kind of climactic day, which is chapter four. It's going to be make or break. It's got so exciting. Um, it was kind of almost paused on a cliffhanger last time. And so let's read now chapter four. Boaz redeems Ruth. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Now, do you notice a couple of things already? The Redeemer hasn't been given a name. Um, he's not significant enough to have been given a name. And Boaz doesn't even name him. He just says, turn aside, friend. So you wonder how close this connection is. Boaz has got 10 elders, so he's up to something. He's got a plan in mind. We know that. Um, and we know Boaz's reputation, so we're expecting him to have a bit of clout here in this conversation. So here we go, verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Um, you probably know that a king's man Redeemer, and that's two words in English. It's one in the Hebrew. And what happens when um, the males died in a family um, was that land that they belonged, it's almost like the will, um, and the ladies who were left over, the family who were left over, then needed um, the nearest male relative um, to step in um, and to basically take charge. Um, they would have the right to the purchase of the land, but they also um, had the responsibility of taking in that family. Now, what Boaz has just said here, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab. Did you notice that? Naomi? who has come back from the country of Moab, he's omitting a character, isn't he? He's leaving Ruth out. Naomi is old. She's past the age of childbearing. So Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. This other guy must have been absolutely rubbing his hands. This is a cracking deal. Like, it's perfect. It's the ideal scenario. So he has his family, his own family, and his own land and his own property, and he is basically getting extra land. And what he has to do, his duty, is to take in the family. And the only family that's been mentioned so far is Naomi, who is past the age of childbearing, so she's not going to have children, and that, that land isn't going to go to some other family. It's gonna, that land is coming, and it's going to be an inheritance of his children. He's gaining land, and the cost, if you like, is Naomi. He's quite old. Um, you know, she, she's, I know it sounds really bad, she's not going to be around long. Um, there's going to be no children there. It's not a big outgoing for a massive return. So this is what Boaz has said. And you're thinking, Boaz, you're supposed to have clout. You know, you're supposed to have wisdom in verse 4. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, if the story finishes at verse 4, it's a really rubbish love story. It's gutting. What is Boaz doing? He is completely messed up here, or so it seems, at verse 4. This other, you know, so-and-so, whatever his name is, this friend, this closer kin, has just said, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem it, absolutely. That's a great deal. Of course I will. Yes, I... Now, it, I don't think that Naomi or Ruth were eavesdropping or, you know, in the crowd nearby, but can you imagine if they were? Naomi, whose name meant pleasant, has changed her name to mean bitter. She may at this point be changing her name again if she was in the crowd to, you know, <laughs> I don't know, giving this guy a whack or giving him a kick up the backside. You're just thinking, Boaz, what are you doing? Like, what is the idea here? You've completely messed up this negotiation, and it's extremely serious. You know, you're after the girl, you're after Ruth, and you're, you're losing her. And he goes so far as to say, I will redeem it. But then in verse 5, we realize that Boaz does have the clout. In fact, he's being pretty crafty. He's presenting all the good points, and then he's kind of bringing in his big, this is the big kind of anchor, this is the big weary punch now. In verse 5, then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. Do you see what he's just done? You acquire Ruth, who could have children, so the estate's not there. The Moabite, a foreigner, okay, bringing her own practices and her own religion. The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, oh, I, I cannot accept it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is a reason he doesn't have a name. This is the reason he's insignificant. His name is kind of shirked in the passage because he shirks his duty. Um, this guy does not have resolve. Um, he was in it for the property. He was in it for increasing his inheritance. But when it came to hassle, which is a pretty crude way of putting it, but the hassle of Ruth, he's, he's not there for that. And Boaz knew it. And Boaz played him. He played him at his own game in a brilliant piece of negotiation. Um, so Boaz proposes the marriage. Uh, sorry, Ruth proposes the marriage to Boaz. It builds up that, to that crescendo. Um, and then there's the big letdown where there's a closer kin. And then we have this chapter four. Now I want you to look at these two verses on the screen. And I want you to read them um, just for yourself. Um, I wonder, do you see it from those two verses? Do you see the point I'm making? Um, 
chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. What was the first problem? Food. Um, the second verse then in chapter 4, verse 13, we're about to come to it. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Second problem, family. Now, do you see what I'm highlighting? The author of the text makes it incredibly, incredibly clear. God provides. It is not Boaz who provides. Um, and as, as, as it's been said all along, we need to be careful not to make Boaz God. There are two problems in this story, food and family. And the author explicitly in two verses makes it crystal clear. God provides food. Wasn't Boaz. God provided that. And in chapter 4, verse 13, God provided the son. God answers. God provided to both of the big problems. Um, let's read on from verse 7. Now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a manner of attesting in Israel. It's a bit like a handshake today. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are the witnesses this day that I have brought from, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah, of course, had 12 sons between them. There are 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. That is a massive, huge prayer, like a massive prayer of blessing. They're saying, just like the 12 tribes of Israel, this is a prayer of fertility on you that you will go forward and multiply. And then we have in verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Um, she, of course, continued the line of, um, she was a Canaanite woman and continued the line. So it's saying, even though you're a Moabite, you're going to continue the line. There are two prayers uh, showing that the people who were there fully understood that Ruth was a Moabite, but also were really pleased. There's a real sense of celebration in this chapter, that it's all come together, that it's all worked out, that it's all come good. And I just think it's, it's crazy because there's all the detail you know, that we've been going through and you've got chapter one and it's so kind of spread out and chapter two, you know, which is just down at the, the field and then you've got chapter three, which is on the threshing floor and these, just these little snippets, these moments, these days are expanded out in a chapter and then you have <laughs> verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. This is the thing that we've been wanting for so long and it's just, you know, she became his wife and they had a kid. You know, 
In one verse, we have all the answers to the things that we've been hoping for in this story. Um, and it just comes quickly. Um, and it's, it's just lovely. There's a real sense of it's all worked out. Um, so I wanted to just um, look at three things um, when it comes to redemption. Because that's really the crux of this chapter, and it ties right in with this morning. Um, to redeem, you have to have these three things. You have to have the right to redeem, the resources to redeem, and the resolve. Um, if we think about this closer kid, he had the right. Um, he was the closest kin. He had the resources, probably. Um, from what we can understand, he's talking about his inheritance. So he probably had the financial way to do it, but he didn't have the spine for it. He didn't have the resolve. Um, if we think about Boaz, Boaz then did have the right because he was next in line. He had the resources. We know he was a wealthy man, but he certainly had the resolve. He was really keen for it. Um, all of this chapter and all of this book of Ruth points to a much bigger story. It points to how God redeems his people across the generations. Um, and if we think of Jesus and how incredibly well and fully Jesus fulfills these three criteria to redeem, Jesus has a right to redeem us. He is God, but he was God in flesh. Um, he came amongst us, and he lived a perfect life. That's the criteria for redeeming sin. Holy, holy, holy. To be blameless. And he was. He absolutely has the right. Resources is kind of laughable, isn't it? Because he's God. <laughs> he's in charge of everything. He has authority over all. Um, but he also has a very unique resource which is needed to redeem us from our sin, and that is his blood. Um, the pure blood of Jesus. And um, we were thinking about it so much this morning when it came to communion. But Jesus' precious, precious blood is the only resource that can cleanse us from our sin. It's what takes away our sin and makes us as white as snow. And he's the only man, obviously God, but man to have walked on earth who had, who had that, you know, pure blood. Um, all authority. But the third one is the one that probably interests me the most, the resolve. Um, Jesus had the resolve. Now let's really think about this. The Bible tells us that he set his face like flint upon the cross. But he had the resolve to endure the past, present, and future wrath of God Almighty, all God's <coughs> hatred of sin, which was funneled down onto the cross. And he had the resolve to see it through. We know at any moment, just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have called legions of angels, but he had the resolve not to, to commit to it. Um, 
something that really bothered me in school as a schoolboy um, was rugby and the changing room and being called a sissy because you were a Christian, because you were a Jesus follower. How wrong is that to call Jesus a sissy? Do you know what I mean? Like he had the resolve. He didn't turn left or turn right. He had the resolve to see through God's wrath set on him on the cross. But also in resolve is the thought, and this is where we can go wrong, we need to be careful. Boaz had the resolve to redeem Ruth. He fancied her. There was something attractive in her. We have just sung um, a really lovely piece, um, that number 88, and it says this. While daily I learn that I myself of sinners the vilest and the chief. There is nothing in us attractive. Do you know what I mean? We are sinners. And if you're sitting there and thinking, no, there is a wee bit. There isn't. It's Christ. It's Christ in us. That's the only attractive thing in us. There's nothing about Keith that is attractive at all to an almighty God. And yet Christ had the resolve, the love for his people and the desire for us to come and worship him and the desire to see us in heaven. He had the resolve to work through the wrath of sin on the cross for us. He met all three of those things so fully and so incredibly and so uniquely on the cross that he redeems us from our sin. And I know this is ground that has been trodden before and we all know Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And it's so easy to be blasé about it. But it is so phenomenal too. And it is all that we hold on to. And it's the reason we're all here. Um, in church, you know, the hope of heaven. Sin dealt with. Um, and just the crazy concept of life with an almighty God. Why? You know what I mean? Why, why would he go through that for me? Um, I find it really hard to understand the resolve. Why, why would he do that for me? What is there in me? Nothing. And yet he just loves us so much. Um, I'm almost done. Um, there's so, so many messages from this, and I've actually found it quite a difficult thing to prepare because diving into chapter four is hard without getting all that context that we kind of started off with. Um, but it's also hard to know what specifically to talk about because another massive theme within this chapter and within the book is God is radically committed, radically committed to pursuing all people. The more um, digging and the more I hear about the Moabites and their way of life, um, 
the more concerning and alarming and sickening it becomes. Um, there, I'm sure, are, are some good stories, but just every, every website I opened, every book I opened as I was trying to prepare for this, it was just more and more about the horrible things that happened in Moab. And yet, God has radically transformed a Moabite, Ruth. Um, God, I just wrote a few of these down. In verse 4, Ruth is described as a Moabite Tess. In chapter 2, verse 10, she's described as a foreigner. In chapter 2, verse 13, she's described as a slave. In chapter 3, verse 9, she's described as a servant wanting marriage. And in chapter 4, verse 10, she's described as a wife. What a huge change. Do you know what I mean? There is no one, no one beyond the reach of God. He is radically committed to pursuing everyone. Everyone. You know, and, and some of these Moabite, no, <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm perhaps a Balaminiite, and then a Bally Walter in. Um, foreigner? Uh, I felt that at the start when I moved down, um, but not so much now. Um, but a slave to sin? Yeah, we are, aren't we? We're the slave to the sin. A servant? And then ultimately a wife? Ruth is rescued from her sin and her situation and brought right through to being a wife. And to think, you know, the bride of Christ in that analogy, you know, that we are brought from our sin into such a real living relationship with God. So if you're in the the audience are listening today and you're you're not a Christian or you're someone who's beating yourself up because you think you're too far from God. We can't be. It's impossible to be. He is radically interested in pursuing all people. And then finally, this is last slide. Um, um, if you're a Christian, only twigged onto this quite late on, but um, then we have um, the child who's born and the child, Obed, in redemptive history, we see different themes. Death to life, curse to blessing, bitterness to happiness, emptiness to fullness, and despair to hope. Um, as a Christian, we have all of these things, but the reality is, for some of us, like Ruth, like Naomi, life comes good, and we may see it here on earth, and what a joy that is. But the reality is, for some of us, we do not say it does not come good on earth. Um, but it will come good after this earth, um, in the new earth. It will come good in heaven. You know, we have such an exciting promise after this life. Um, and God will be with us, and he will help us through it. Um, he will turn our despair into hope. He will turn our bitterness into happiness. Um, that does not mean that every day is going to be easy. Um, but ultimately, that top one there, death to life, he is turning our sinful state, a life of eternal damnation in hell, which is terrifying, into eternity in heaven. You know, um, 
our curse of sin into just an immeasurable blessing. Happiness forever. And one quick thing, Naomi is described as coming back empty. She says that, you know, I'm empty. Um, right at the end, she's not empty. Then Naomi, this is verse uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Her hands are full, you know, um, and so are ours. Even right now, our hands are full. We can lay claim of heaven now, this side of death. Um, I'm really sorry. That was extremely jumbled up. I knew that because I, instead of going from left to right in my notebook, went left to the very end and then into the middle. <laughs> um, but we'll maybe just pray. Amen. Um, Lord God, we thank you uh, for this story of um, Naomi and the story of Ruth and the story of Boaz and, and the different characters here in Obed and, and how rich this little book of four chapters is, um, how you show us that no one is outside your love, how you show us so many promises in this book, Lord, about your faithfulness, about your having a plan, um, about your wanting to bless us, um, about your faithfulness. Um, Lord, we thank you for it, but perhaps most of all, Lord, we thank you for the big main theme, which is this Kingsman Redeemer, that we are redeemed, that we are saved from sin, from ourselves, from Satan and his schemes, Lord, that we are saved um, from eternity in hell, and we are given heaven which is just a crazy crazy thing lord that we are given something that we so don't deserve and a crazy thought lord that you love us and and the bible tells us that you sing over us um, and just lord as we look at our lives and consider ourselves i know i consider myself just the chief of sinners lord and our, i'm so frustrated with the sins that recur and i, I want to drive down um Frustrate it, Lord, with the day-to-day -day and thinking about how I could have and should have done things better. Lord, just to think amidst all of our wrong and all of our shortcomings that you love us. Lord, just thank you so much. Cannot thank you enough. We pray this in your name. Amen.